Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us as we journey through the Silmarillion, exploring the deepest reaches of Tolkien's history, starting with the first song and ending with the defeat of Sauron's master, the Dark Lord Morgoth. I mean, if there's no further ado, we can get started. Um, yeah, we're going to go alphabetically, and you're going to tell me something about the chapter. I don't know why, like, if, I don't know, this chapter just really stood out to me as being, like, a lot sadder than some of the other battles. Like, I know there's been a lot of other battles where elves are dying, but I don't know, this one just really stuck out to me as being a lot, I don't know, sadder than the others. Um, oh, especially, like, when Fingon died. That was sad. Um, and I don't think I'll ever get over just, like, this sentence where it's, like, um, the Balrogs, like, charged into battle. Just, like, picturing the epicness of multiple bal Balrogs just charging in to a horde of elves. And it's just, it's pretty epic. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, but it was, it was sad to read. Same. Sad. Uh, also, um, I, I talked about that a little bit in the past, uh, in the book study on Friday. I was like, wait, wait, Hurin is introduced as someone who, like, what? Like, and like, he, her, like we talk about Hurin, and I'm like, the way, the way he talked about him is like, he's been introduced before, but I'm like, I could not remember when. I was like blanking out of when he's been introduced. And then, like, Rob reminded me, yeah, it's because it's been introduced in another chapter that has another thing happening. So we scheme over it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a weird part of me reading that. I was like, I know this guy is important. Where does he come from? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was basically my reaction. Um, but yeah, like, a very packed chapter. I felt like I read that at night just before sleeping and I was like, I felt like it was like, here, in your face, and that in your face, and that in your face, and that in your face. I was like, I can't process, there's a lot. And so, yeah, but a good chapter. Okay. Yeah, I, this chapter is fascinating. It is short, but it is so stuffed with things. Like every every paragraph is like in any book this would be a chapter of its own. It has like so much like there's whole stories that are just basically in a paragraph. Uh like the epicness of the dwarves in the middle of the battle. Uh actually, yeah, that was like just a shock. It was like you know, the last alliance of men and elves, you know, from Lord of the Rings, it's like, oh yes, men and elves. And it's like, oh, this one's got dwarves? You got the sons of Feodor, they get the dwarves in this too? It's like, how'd they manage that one? Um, so, very epic confrontation. Um, also, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, elves getting racist towards humans because of this battle, it was just a weird, what? <laughs> that happened um but my overriding um 
my overriding feeling from this chapter is just man is this uh like the culmination it's it's a weird like nexus point of every major plot line of the Silmarillion uh because we have like all the political shenanigans um, and the oath of Feanor like messing up the negotiations and then you have um you have Baron and Luthien kind of starting this off and then uh, we get like the next two major plot lines up through the end of the Quenta just foreshadowed very very heavily <laughs> in this chapter so it's like everything important is shows up here somehow uh that that is a uh, yeah, it's 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 both payoff and set up, uh, which is why I memed in our chat that this was the Infinity War of the Silmarillion, because it's just it's it's the big bummer, but it's also everything coming together and also setting up for endings, <laughs> all the endings. <laughs> so. Man, I would I want to see this on screen. It would be better than Infinity War. I would argue it depends who adapts it. Um, it's it's crazy how much happens and how fast it's over. Uh, it reminds me of Helm's Deep. Like every time you read Helm's Deep, you forget how short Helm's Deep actually is. Um, Tolkien packs a lot into these battle chapters without uh, lingering on them for too long. But the part that affects me the most, I think, is everything that happens to the Harun. There's a it's pretty dark. It's evil. It's uh, it hurts. Uh, I really like how this chapter is constructed, and that's like maybe a weird thing to say, but we've kind of been talking about how much is packed into it. Um, and I like how efficiently Tolkien like pulls out all of the different political threads that have been building up to it. Um, right and there are a lot of little payoffs from that, right? When you talk about the impact that um, Kelgorman and Nargothrond and then the payoff of having Turgon show up um, unlooked for, right? All of these little things that are coming together and the kind of incredible amount of time that they spent kind of setting that up, I guess. And then Tolkien's just like, and all of these things happen to culminate in a battle where these people are present. Um, and it's, and it really is, it's just enough people to almost win. And like the number of times that Tolkien tells us too how close they came to winning, it gets me. Okay, it gets me. I'm full of despair and sadness. Also, I'm really sad that Fingon is dead now. This is the chapter that really makes me want a good Silmarillion TV series because there's so much happening and it would be incredibly satisfying and tense to like show all of it on screen, particularly after spending like a season or the whole show building up what like building up to it, you know, like actually showing the work that went into it in more than like one sentence or one paragraph. And that would be really neat. Um, also reinforces 
my opinion that it, if you're making a Silmarillion TV show, one of your like main, main characters is Mybros because he's one of the few people who's actually there from beginning to end. Um, and does a lot of things. Like a lot of things happen on his decisions like in agency, so. Yeah, Tristan. Yeah, hello. Um, so I think this was kind of the first time that I paid attention to like Fingen's big speech at the beginning. And by big speech, I mean like four lines of Elvish. But, um, okay, sure, whatever. No, it sounded long when you were reading it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was interesting like hearing it and recognizing the hours because I'm very aware of uh, Huron's um, lines later, Day Shall Come Again. Um, we have that on a t-shirt. Are and Tuluva, yeah. Yeah, and hearing that and being like, oh, even before reading the translation of it, like, I bet, I bet actually that's, that's important, and Huron's is a callback to that, and boy, howdy is it. So that was, that was interesting. I enjoyed the, um, the, the use of Fingen's lines twice, once at the beginning, once at the end, in some ways. Yeah. All right, well, uh, before we get into the battle proper, um, this chapter uh, starts with a second conclusion to Baron and Luthien, which Josh tells me he, think, he thinks is a weird choice. Um, but I should ask uh, what the rest of you thought of this little conclusion 2.0 to Baron and Luthien. I find it more satisfying in a way because like the other one, as I said back last week, it's, I find it's very rushed, particularly after like how much the chapter took its time for other part of it of her story. And here it like goes back to take its time and see like the sadness of it, like million sadness is I think the sadness that is rippling down to the whole elvish kingdom like to the whole elvish dome and that's what is hinted at at the end of baron and lucien but like it's not very clear why it's so sad but then you see it in millions like losing her daughter forever <laughs> like everyone did <laughs> um like everyone later but like you know like that that's when you understand why it's sad you know that's when you because like it's not losing the prettiest lady in the land or like the smartest lady in the land it's it's losing someone you care about and someone you should not lose because a parent who loses a child is it's not natural anyway you know like uh, a lot of people say that it's like the worst pain and and like i really like i, I understand what he means by saying it's weird to have it at the beginning of this chapter but I really like it's here because it's more satisfying than the other conclusion. Interesting, yeah. It's at the start of, I like that it's at the start of this chapter because it gives you like that nice little moment of hope before everything gets ruined through the, the entire rest of the chapter. And I think it's more effective to like have things start out nice before everything goes terrible. 
Here's a question. Like, do we feel like this is just sort of a random thing tacked on here for the sake of continuity? Or do we feel like there is, well, plot continuity? Or do we feel like there are thematic links between this conclusion to Baron and Luthien and the rest of the chapter? That part of it is continuity, but I think that's like actually for a really good reason. Like it's it's a thematic link in the sense that you are reminded um, or it tells you right from the beginning when you start this thing that's about the battle and it starts with Baron and Luthien that like their actions had consequences, right? Um, like it sets it up as, uh, as this kind of idea of the far reaching consequences of what otherwise would be a really isolated story because, um, because Baron and Luthien, you know, go out, this is their family issue, it's about them, them being in love, and then they go out and they get a Silmaril and they go home and they live alone forever. And so it's really very kind of contained. Um, but putting the end of it here, it, at the beginning of this story, says, they went and lived alone forever and everybody else experienced the consequences of their action. Right? Um, and those consequences are, are really diverse, right? Sometimes it's bad. For instance, Orodreth and nobody in Nargothron wants to go out and fight anymore. Um, but sometimes they are kind of good in the sense that Morgoth, I don't know, Morgoth, is like, this is a thing we can do. We might be able to do something. Morgoth is weakened, and he thinks that because Baron and Luthien succeeded, right? Um, and so it's the interconnectedness of these stories by story, I guess, by the impact that the knowledge of Baron and Luthien has on other people. And I think that's really interesting thematically. Like, I think it's interesting how those things intersect. Also, I might, I, it might be uh, a bit uh, much, but I find that interesting that. Um, like the last line for Beren and Lucien for this, uh, none so Beren and Lucien leaves the world or marked where at last their bodies lay. And they're the most famous people in like all of this book and all of that the mythos of elf and humans. And no one knows what. And at the same, and like I find an interesting parallel with the fact that this battle is like a key battle. And so many people died during this famous, famous, famous battle, and no one knows where their bodies last lay. It's a weird parallel, I know, but like, like a lot of the soldiers Wait, what that. Do mean, what do you mean nobody knows where the bodies of people who died in the battle lay? Like they're piled I mean, into a very significant mound. Oh, okay. Never, never mind. So, like. like I told you, a lot happened in this chapter. I like. My brain did not retain a lot. I'm sorry about That's that. That's okay. So, never mind. My parallel is broken and it was fair because it was a stretch. So, it's an yeah. interesting point to bring up though, right? Because then there's the question of like, what is it no, doing? No, but it's story? a... Mm -hmm. But but then I, I think like, it's not the same, but it's parallel. Because we start, we start with unknown graves and we end with a giant mass grave specifically about of the bodies the um yeah that's so, a good point it's a non grave uh, of non people and no i think non grave of non people 
Sorry. I, <laughs> no, I, I think it's too. very... I, I mean, I think... I, I think the... I, I really like this thing because I don't I don't really feel like the ending of Baron and Luthien I, I feel is like to me that's the ending of the Lay of Lathian that is released from bondage that is the ultimate like they're released from the world and I believe that is the elven like if you ask an elf to give you the tale of Baron and Luthien that's how they end that story and this is Okay, that's how we end that story, but there's also the political ramifications and how that leads up to the battle. Um, this is, yeah, it bring, I mean, Mythros is, <laughs> Mythros being like, hey, they just did that. We need to do, this. we need to fight Morgoth now is directly linked. Um, like the paragraph, the second paragraph doesn't work if you don't have a, a reference to Baron and Luthien right before it. Um, it also brings in the the context of the continent, that where they are, where they lived, and we'll end this chapter with orcs uh, just running wild through Beleriand and all the southern regions. Um, so we'll have that, um, and yeah, and yeah, and the graves. Um, I like. I, I think it's a. Uh, I think it's it's actually quite important and it fits this fits much better in this chapter than it would have in the last chapter. I I like it is a it is an epilogue but it is a it is a codex to the Lay of Lathian and the tale of Baron and Luthien um rather than an actual integral part of the story they're trying to tell with that one. Um this is this is you know it's it's a it, it is more connective tissue to what comes on later, and I think that's why it's important to, to have it in this chapter and not starting to worry about, like, political, you know, the politics and who's, who's Thingol's heir? Uh, you know, that's... Heirs and kingship and lords and titles are much more important now when uh, everyone gets summons to war. I totally agree. Um, I also really like this thing that you guys couldn't do. Wow, maybe you're not that great. Um, anyways, maybe Morgoth's not that great. <laughs> reason number like 67 why the elves have a patriarchy, even though they say otherwise. Um, but the, the, that weird bit about, like, it's the customs of men or whatever we were talking about last week. Anyway, uh... <laughs> um, right. Uh, and then again in this chapter where, like, what you said, Jordan, about how the story of Baron and Luthien shows Mybros that Morgoth is not unassailable and directly inspires this union. Is this the union of Mybros? Yes. This is, okay. Shouldn't have put your name on it, because everything you put your name on it is uh, cursed to fail. Should have called the Union of Thing and then No way.
Yeah, I think you all know that the ongoing thread over here is that Fingen and Maedros are very husbands. Like, they couldn't get married, so they just made a, like, military alliance and called it the Union. You know, it's like... What? That's a whole different kind of shotgun wedding. <laughs> oh my god. Jordan's making, like, a whole face. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Now we try to figure out what the uh, what what the what the what Fingen's ending flame means for this metaphor, and I do not know what it is, and I don't almost want to know. <laughs> Unlike uh, Baron and Lucien starting this chapter, um, I mean, it kind of also fits on how Tolkien introduced Baron and Lucien stories, because like. Yes, he like the first paragraph of it, and he's like, "Oh yes, this is a great story." That blah 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 blah. That's very important, and like, it's very much longer than what I'm gonna give you here, but it's also like, still long anyway. Um, but like the second paragraph is like re, like, re tying it back to what just happened in the chapter before by like saying like, Barahir like did not want to abandon Dorthonian, and he fought and. Yeah, we have Baron, so that's one of our characters, but he's also linked into this whole big mess that happened in the previous chapter. So it makes sense that after like a personal story, Tolkien will retie it into the bigger scheme of things. I'll also just like to double down on what I said in my intro. Uh, the fact is, We'll end this chapter with like very uh, clear call forwards to uh, Turin and Tuor um, and Arendel. So it's like the four. The so we have the the other three great stories of the first age. So you like making sure you have Baron and Luthien called back heavily at the beginning really ties all four like, his four great stories, I mean, the three he wrote and the one that he totally that is totally So, moving past the first couple paragraphs to the rest of the chapter. Um, most of the rest of the chapter, until, like, the very end when you kind of get the fallout of this actual battle, is the Neonath Arnoidiad, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. And Kara and Eloise both picked up on the fact that it's very sad. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's... It's it's a whole lot of just like fascinating small drama that just gets really <laughs> just plows right through it. Let's just get all the stuff so we can set up all the different armies, which I was also fascinated by because the this battle is actually very very well like you know 
it's it's there's a lot of focus of like where all the armies are and like which which flanks go after which i almost want a like a map or a like a somebody to model it out for me of like who tax what where end of time presentation yeah or like see if someone already has because people have definitely done that for the battles when lord of the rings so somebody might have done that for this Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, okay, so uh, do you guys have thoughts on the tactics that the elves are planning slash using? Or Morgoth? This is like the Josh question and he's not here, but if anybody else has thoughts on battle tactics. My hazy memory and my very low knowledge of strategy, it seems that a good tactic because I, from what I understand, they try to like have Fingons this way and Majors this way. That seems like a good idea, uh, of course, and like it's kind of like uh, the big obstacle is the fact that like Morgoth also moves his armies and also have ideas and cool for him I guess <laughs> um but like I I didn't quite follow what happened after like the original plan kind of fails except that some people do pull a theoden and just ran into it and oh look at that he's the only survivor uh, <laughs> Uh, I just see survive, I guess, but like, sad for everyone around him. Um, like, but the original plan was not a bad one from my very unlearned like experience or like something like that. Yeah, there's um, there's more going on here than the siege that wasn't actually a siege that we uh, that we talked about um before like even little things um like when they're waiting in the hills uh because they want the forces to have to like climb the hills so when they have um, an advantage they can shoot arrows at them or whatever um, and tire them out before the battle commences but then the counter strategy of wanting to drive them out of that position and like having a plan for that there's a lot of layers to what's going on um which in some ways makes a lot of sense if you think about like the cosmology of the world. Nobody's waged a big war. So like you don't know how to siege properly. But now we've been doing this for a while and we have some like strategies and, and tactics we've built up over the years. There's definitely something. I, I find it both fascinating and kind of like there's a lot of info, but I also almost want more. Um, there's like a certain amount of detailing, especially like uh, when uh, Turgon shows up and all the Gondolin have like chainmail, and it's like, oh, they sound like they have like, like Gondolin has, inc like I don't know, jumped like to the Iron Age or something in comparison to like Bronze Age like elves and i'd love to see that or you know the fact that the orcs are all like morgoth has told them to like not show steel while they march 
um, so that they like they're like, oh crap, they're already here. Um, they're walking across the desert with no open metal, which is really cool. Um, one just feeling that I have w reading this is that um, with all the kind of all the talk of wings and flank common to I think many types of like kind of open warfare but it really would almost feel um it, it would feel very well placed in like phalanx like greek style combat where you have them all lined up and in a single like rectangular things and the whole point is to surround somebody or to break their line and scatter them right because the, your your best defense is to stay in formation when you do that um and because it's all it all seems to be p either pincer movements or yeah driving through driving a wedge through things and that's kind of the entire battle is who is in control of what moves and you know if they're pushing forward or back um so it's it feel like in that way it almost it feels both a kind of primitive primitive in a sense of like not super like super complex tactics but also like kind of what the like what the maybe go-to strategy for like the first major war in a world should look like which is we we get as big you know our be biggest and best fighting force just put them in a line and don't just have them like running at each other and that because that's when you just run at people, even if you're a really good fighter, that doesn't work very well as, you know, the the, you know, the, the poor the poor guy who gets the uh, the initial uh, I have the head of your head bro brother here, um, you know, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, Sauron definitely remembers this tactic. He makes he makes them do it to Minas Tirith already, you know, in the Lord of the Rings. So they seem to keep that one in the playbook. Yeah, um, I think so. Like the strategy here is actually, I think, probably would be really effective. Um, and part of the way it would work is, well, if like if the news hadn't gotten to Morgoth ahead of time, part of the way it would work would be to play on who Morgoth thinks the elves are, right? Um, like, the benefit of it being Mithros and his company, Mithros and his brothers, and their company that march first, is that it's the sons of Feanor that have this oath against him, right? And so if you can keep up the illusion that you're not, that you don't have anyone else coming, because you're too far separated from the rest of the Noldor, you, you're you're too far off on your own, um, and you're and you're the sons of Fane or making your last desperate pitch, then that works really well. Like that's that's really efficient. And so it's really effective that he would say, Well, we're gonna march first, and then Morgoth will send his armies out to deal with us, our tiny little puny little force. And then you come from the side, and there's way more of us than expected, and we actually have allies. And that's like a really clever strategy, and it does like it traps Morgoth's uh, practically it traps Morgoth's armies um in a, in a hard place and um but mostly what it does is takes them by surprise and that's the effective part um and part of why it continues to still be 
almost to still almost work is that even while Morgoth is like, kidding, I have more armies than you thought I did. I was not tricked into sending out my whole army. Um, the elves also have more armies than Morgoth thought they did because Turgon showed up. Um, and that's just luck on their part because they didn't expect to have that many armies. Um, but if Turgon had showed up, but they'd managed not to give their plan away to Morgoth, like, yeah, that would have been, would have worked out for them, I think. <laughs> would have worked out for them probably pretty efficiently. Because, yeah, I agree, the, when the, when the Gondolindrum show up, it's really obvious that they have more resources and more technology and more time spent learning to be like effective fighters, I think, and not just people who are holding a leaguer, right? Like Maedros' whole crew, what they've been doing is holding this leaguer for ages. Um, what Turgon's been doing is running battle simulations for, century, for a couple centuries. Like, hmm, how would this work? Okay, let's try this one now. All right, okay, next try. Where he can see what's most effective. You do kind of see that like later, but you mostly see it here where his force is so efficient and powerful. Yeah. I also think it's really interesting on the level of resources and resource development to um, like think about the fact that it makes sense that Turgon is pr like producing his own armor and weaponry, but the Sons of Feanor are not. The Sons of Feanor made this like extremely valuable arrangement with the dwarves who are forging their armor and weapons, which again makes a lot of sense because like the people of Feanor are busy holding this leaguer. They're not gonna have time for like mining. Also love the dwarves as part of this strategy love the dwarves strategy like battle strategy overall the fact that they're just like we may be small but our strategy in battle is to be utter terrors and it works that works out for them they're like everyone is afraid of us thanks <laughs> oh god every time you get like literally even the slightest bit of information about dwarven culture i'm like the <gasps> the, the the masks the masks just are like the coolest things in the world is like oh yes we come to war <laughs> if you don't just have helmets we got like terror faces on our <laughs> uh masks and then of course the fact that it's like oh hi morgoth do you like fire well we got fireproof troops here uh, uh come at us bro uh the, the, the whole like yeah, yeah. Send out the Balrogs and dragons. Um, actually, that's that's one line I really love. Um, it, it seems a little silly, but it's like, and then came the Balrogs and the dragons and Glarog, the father of dragons, and the whole just father of dragons bit is like, oh man, <laughs> like I'm I'm suddenly imagining him like Glarog like ten times bigger than any other like Drake on the field. Like the other ones are just like lizard. <laughs> You know, fire-breathing lizards, and this it, it, this is like a giant crocodile, just marching through, um, which is also very cool. Once you get the actual like dwarfs versus Glaurong, uh, little mini mini sode uh, in here, um, 
and dwarf singing. Oh my goodness, that is apparently the freakiest thing in the universe, is dwarf singing. Well, it's like all of these, like, incredibly deep, rumbling voices. I don't know, it's so cool. Okay, I love that part. Like, it's, it's sad because obviously they just lost their law, but like, it's the middle of a battle. Like, it made me laugh. It's the middle of a battle. They like just like crashed it because like they went against dragon and were like, who cares? Uh, and then like they fought off Glodron off the battlefield. And then like one of them died and they're like, well, time to fuck off now. And they're just like, slowly exit in like a, like in a funeral like it's sad i know but like i just imagine like Medros being like what are you living like what the heck is happening right now like just part of my army is just leaving what is happening like i feel a bit bad for him it was like <laughs> it just became a very funny metal image at like 11 p.m i mean and yet like it's literally attributed to them the fact that the dragons don't wither absolutely everything in the north. So they're like, we literally turned Glaurung around. Our king died. We're, we've done our part. Peace out. Yeah. But also, like, it, also with regards to uh, dwarf culture, um, it's, it's, it's like one of the very few glimpses we get of first age dwarf culture. And it's interesting because it's different from second and third age Moria, like dwarves of Moria slash Khazad-dum culture. Like it's notably different just in the fact that they wear masks to war, which we don't, which, you know, Gimli's people don't do. Um, so that's, presumably like a, either a first age thing or a Nagrod and Belagost thing and the fact that Azagal is a Khuzdul name like I'm pretty sure Azagal is the only dwarf named with a Khuzdul name in any of Tolkien's writing which is also quite interesting this is this is a bit of a like random almost fan like this would be like in in a in a theoretical adaptation of this uh i'd almost like um like they wear masks and i'm like what if what if first age dwarfs after this battle wore their beards short because of the because the hair all got burnt off like It'd be, I'd be like, I was at the battle, my my beard got burnt off from dragon fire and still survived. It's like, you know, second and third age dwarves get long beards, but first age dwarves are like, you know, much more, you know, close cropped. It would just be funny. I mean, apparently first age dwarves are also much more likely to fight off dragons. So, you know, like, that does not conduce to like... There's a big incentive to keep your beard very long and very flowy and very flammable around, you know? Like, that's another thing that, like, another cultural difference. Like, yes, dwarves are second and third age fight dragons because dragons fight them. Uh, but it's not, I don't, it doesn't appear to me that it's in that amount of dragon. That amount, like that. 
So, also, second age dragons fly. <laughs> big, big difference. There's a difference when the dragon is in front of you versus above you. Particularly when you're the size of a dwarf. The other thing, as we'll see, is that it to like Tolkien alludes to it, right? He says like they were in the custom of wearing these terrifying masks to war, and that served them really well against Glaurung. And we'll kind of see later that the reason that's so effective against dragons is because dragons rely on don like eye contact, basically. Like not exclusively, you know, they're also big clawy things with fire but um like dragons like glaurung and also smell um like make make contact with you and then you're unable to move or they like dominate your will so the fact that you have this thing over your face making it like a lot harder for the dragon to make direct eye contact with you is like really effective really good everyone should adopt that Apparently, like, the only thing, well, I don't know, I guess it will probably come up later, but the, the one thing you need to to try and attempt to fight off Glaurong is some kind of scary hat. You need a scary hat if you want to face Glaurong. You need, like, uh, one of those Halloween store scream masks. Yeah. Be honest, I was thinking, I think it's 300? Uh, the like the whatever I, the uh, uh, his like assassin dudes. I think I think they have weird yeah. demonic yeah sure is. demonic masks. Yeah, or just like gargoyles. I want them to have like gargoyles as or grotesques as masks. Would be it's like it's actually kind of fun because I like I think of the elves as so much more like like greco-roman like heroic you know just standing there we don't need to hide our faces and just the dwarves going all like no we need to strike terror into people also they are in the custom of wearing masks so they are doing war before this who are they fighting and who do they need to terrify this much when yeah, they go to war works presumably yeah um, but also, like, that's interesting, because, like, I was, because, like, the Greeks had masks at some point, too. Like, the, there are Greek helmets yes. that have, like, a full, like, mask face covering. And so I was kind of imagining something similar to that for the dwarves, which is, like, twisted and terrible expressions, and maybe they put, like, horns on it or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, bye. I I I don't know. I yeah, I think I had like 300 or like Japanese like Oni masks. Like a, a bit more more stylized cuz dwarves are great. Just like give the give them the most um and maybe yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like Blackbeard, you know, the the like shock value is half the battle like if you can if you can inspire fear that you know half your fighting is done for you and you don't need to kill as many people or they're just much easier to kill yeah. 
one one thing about this whole battle that I really noticed was the style of um, metaphor and simile that was used because um, it's very naturalistic. I I think I noticed forest, fire, and river imagery as the like main focus. You get Turgon's army like looking like a like a forest um, when with the when they come. Uh, there's a lot of yeah flame like there's like a battle spreading like wildfire across the plain when it first starts um and then uh the water imagery really comes when uh who are uh who are and huran um are um they they i believe they cross the river and then stand their ground to let turgon escape um and then the orcs like wade across the river and and then breach like waves upon upon the farther shore and like it, it's it's all water imagery then so the kind of the the naturalistic imagery is both a like a very interesting like i don't know what i would have expected but it's otherwise but i it felt very both tolkien and also very like yes for a culture that doesn't know what war looks like that's how you like what what would you use to describe war um if you haven't seen armies march before, like it feels just armies marching and bombs dropping and explosions going off. Like that is a, that is a metaphor we use for other things. But when you are a culture that hasn't had that much large scale battle, what do you describe it as? And it's like, yes, wildfires and floods would be the thing that you would, that you would reference. So I just found it very cool. And the fact that they have multiples of these throughout the battle for different stylistic choices was very cool to me. What I think about with that is also like this chapter is a very, well, the Silmarillion in general is a very like great man view of history, right? Like history, like historical developments are spearheaded by great men doing big things. And this chapter is very much like that, where some people, usually, like almost always, people who are at the head of an army are individualized, and then some aspect of their story is incorporated, but the rest of the army is this sort of monolith of like a wave or a forest. Oh, right. And also that it kind of minimizes the war, which is in contrast to a lot of Tolkien's other battles, including Gondolin, the siege of the of uh, Brithombar and Eglarest later in this chapter, um, the siege of Helm's Deep, and the siege of Minas Tirith, which, I mean, I guess, like, it makes sense. Siege engines and whatnot is when you want your engines, but the the naturalistic description is like I guess yet another thing kind of differentiating it from a very like mechanistic man-made view of war does anyone else have any thoughts Okay, um, what else in this 
after do we want to talk about? I say Fingen, but there's not actually a lot that I want to talk about about Fingen. I just want to like experience lament <laughs> for Fingen. That's okay. Fingen is really good. One thing I noticed, like on this reading that I didn't before, is I was paying a lot more attention to whose perspective this is being told in, and this is being told in people's perspectives. Maybe I think more than um. A lot of other battle chapters of the Silmarillion, I guess, feel like a more omniscient bird's eye or historical view. Whereas this one actually, well, maybe not. I mean, you get some of Fingolfin's thought processes. Um, but this one was interesting because you get Fingen's actual perspective. Like you are in Fingen's head before the battle. So, yeah, I guess I also kind of wanted to ask, like, what does that do? Or are there other parts where you noticed that the narration goes, like, into someone's perspective? And what did you think about that? I don't know that you get much from Huron's perspective, but you certainly get um, part of the story following him quite the hey patient a little bit moments to the um rear guard of destiny moment <laughs> um which i think is kind of the first time you really get a human perspective on a battle this is kind of the first battle where they really take the first of the major battles where they really take part and even in the battles where you've seen humans play a large role, such as the slot of Halath, you don't get very much of a perspective from any of the involved characters. You get um, Coranthia being like, and then she was kind of mad about how I didn't go out for three weeks. Weird, right? <laughs> um. One thing I'm actually looking at um, is actually the flow of how the perspective, a lot of the perspectives actually change with who is actually um, like winning or making progress with the battle. Because I was just looking, because on either side of the whole um, Morgoth sends out like his armies with uh, and like the treachery of men and the dragons and balrogs coming out onto the field, um, you have. Uh, you know, Turgon fighting up to Fingon and meeting on the field, and that's told from Turgon's perspective. And then a couple paragraphs later, when you have the fall of that line, um, it's Gothmog's perspective. It, he is the one, it's all it, like the sentences are all about him and how he drives the wedge uh, between Turgon and Fingon, how he bat, bats them aside, which is like that's a bit weird from a like elves are writing it from Gothmog's perspective <laughs> what but it's like in a terms of a oh who's who's actually in charge of like the momentum of the field it's like oh that makes perfect sense it's a you know the elves were winning here and now with the counterattack, and so now we're in the opposite position the act the action is being done by 
Gothmog or Gothmog's forces, um, and kind of it's definitely personified in a great elf, great Balrog of history moment. Uh, yeah. Perspective thing, because you don't you don't even really get like Turgon's perspective as Turgon is fighting up, right? You're not seeing what they're thinking. It's it's a question. It's a writing tactic. It's telling yeah. you who's yeah has the position of advantage on the field and who's who has the power. Right. So it's telling you it's telling you that Turgon does something when Turgon is on the attack, when he's on the offensive. Um, but you never but it doesn't use uh, and then Turgon like was beaten back by it doesn't switch to that passive that passive tense um because you're you want to keep up that sense of um yeah who holds the power on the battlefield and also like maintain the action and so you want to use active instead of passive phrasing pretty much because you don't what? really get like it's not like you get what Gothmog is thinking no. no you just get what he's doing which is yeah like it's a, it's a more objective thing it's not like it's not like thinking at the beginning of the battle where it tells you like and then He's looking at Bangor Drum and he's like, mm, you know, I'm concerned actually. Yeah. I'm afraid. <laughs> to, be, to be honest, in the terms of like whose perspective is written from, the one time that I thought about it in this chapter was at the end because I'm like, okay, wait, when was the ending stuff with Horan written? <laughs> was that all after, like, in a post, you know, post uh, his release? Because, uh, I mean, it could have happened, but it just felt weird to be like, we're getting all this information from perspectives where the only, like, non-evil combatant left alive is Hurin. It's like, just a... And just a, a well, no, but, the, but it's like, once the rear scouts are gone, they're all dead. He's literally the only one left alive. Yeah, well, um, I wonder if that suggests orc sources, right? Like, I wonder if that suggests that the rumor of Hurin's defeat, like, terrified the orcs so much that, like, slaves in Angband heard about it, like, heard the rumor through the orc army. Yeah, or, or escape slaves or stuff. <laughs> yes? I'd like to think that he was yelling so loud that, like, Turgon's army in the street could hear each and every time. He said, "Our oh, Antelope," and they're like, "That's another one." Like that's great. Kept, yeah. how, how many? How, so how many times was that? You're waiting for the next one, and it never comes. Yeah, sixty-five, yeah. seven. Okay, we're taking bets. How far is he going? Is he going to eighty? Do we have bets on eighty? Oh, seventy. About. They're gone. What do your elders hear? My adopted son dying. Yep. Yeah. Oh. But, the, but that's what I'm saying about the rear guard, though, right? Is like, we're told that Turgon's forces entirely disappear, leaving only Hurin, which is like believable in the sense that they are all retreated from the battle. But if Hurin is yeah. still present, but the only one that they know is there, right? Because of that connection between Hurin and Turgon. I guess. Um, I would say it's possible and even probable that Turgon would leave a couple of people well out of the battle so that they don't draw any attention back to Gondolin, because that is the primary importance. Sure. But even to see, right, like, th the thing about Hurin is that Hurin is captured. But if I were Turgon 
and concerned about Hearn in the way that I am, I leave a couple people because if the orcs kill him and leave, then you can take his body. You can um, you can get his body, which is possibly. I guess. I mean, there's definitely stuff there that either has to come from way later or definitely from Hurin because the it lasts for. I don't know how long it takes for a hill to be built out of bodies and for grass to grow on it. I would assume months, at least. Um, I mean, definitely some of this is from in the future. Like, it's not contemporaneous only sources, but it's it it, it is an interesting bit that because we transition kind of from Hurin's last stand into uh, uh, Morgoth and Hurin. That's a kind of a kind of interesting. Like, yes. What, so, whose perspective are we actually getting, or whose information are we actually getting? Um, was a question I had because yeah. from the other stuff, like I could definitely, like you know, you could have it from uh, Turgon's surviving forces or from that. But then, even, then there's even stuff like you know uh, the the men and women. I guess it must be from like Turin's family, because um, they're talking about how like no no human scouts make it back to uh, uh, is it Orthonian? Hithlum. Hithlum. Yeah. There's no 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 human scouts, right? So and only the uh, uh, the evil the evil men who get sent there to be with their consolation prize. Of terrorizing women and children and old people. Yeah. Yeah, so there's gonna be a lot of sources. And I think we do know, if I'm remembering reading Children of Hearn correctly, which I think is where I think it is in Children of Hearn, um, or possibly elsewhere, but I think we do know that about Hurin, that the information about what happened to him, um, and his like conversation with Morgoth and punishment yeah. comes partially from yeah, other slaves in Angband who, like, heard about yeah. it. So I'm pretty sure that's one of the things that we're told is, like, Morgoth yes. spent a lot of time trying to get to her in, and it did not work out. And everybody knew about it. Yeah, and I think we also get a little bit more about her in, in the upcoming chapter. Although I could be wrong about that. Yeah. Um... So uh, I definitely, uh, before we get to like Hearn and Morgoth, I, I definitely want to talk more about the, the final stand. Um, the rear guard and Hurin and Huor and Huor's eyes of death and Hurin's final battle. Yeah, let's talk about death-based prophecy. <laughs> Who doesn't love that? Uh, what did you want to say about that? Specifically, Dredden. I mean, it's 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 definitely like a kind of trope uh, with Tolkien here that like you know momentous events happen and like people speak with the eyes of you know death or you know specific prophecy and I mean it's kind of unclear if they because they seem to know that they are doing it, um, which is an interesting facet. Like you know you're prophesying when you're prophesying. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's definitely some sense of a uh, like definitely being written from a perspective where you know the entire story 
Um, the, the fact that I think for at least the second time in the Silmarillion, we get a reference to Myglin being like super like nosy and mm -hmm. listening in on all these conversations about how, uh, hey, uh, from you and from me, a star, a new star will arise and remembering this. You know, get a get a Telltale Games. Myglin will remember this. You know, pop up on the screen, and it's like we. I don't. I. Don't, I mean, I think, but we've had of Myglin, um, before. But I don't know that his importance in the like fall of Gondolin has been foreshadowed all that much, except for the fact that he's like weird about uh, Idril. So the fact that it just kind of appears in this chapter as a throwaway line is just like, huh? What? <laughs> what are you? Foreshadowing. It's also, I, I think, interesting from not a meta-narrative, but an in-narrative perspective to get the idea that, like, being close to death um, gives you a certain amount of prophecy due to its connection with Mandos. And I don't know if that's ever explicitly stated, but Mandos is pretty well known as like the prophecy Valar. And most famously for the deal with Mandos, but for other reasons as well. Um, and so I wonder if there's like a closeness to death is a part of why, a closeness to Mandos is a part of why that closeness to death is uh, important in terms of Prophecy. Possibly. It's also might be very possible that the fact that they are standing on a river is very important. <laughs> um, you know, we got we got Olmo here. Some something's happening. That's true. There is a lot of people making their retreats or their last stands by bodies of water, whether it's um rivers or the mouths of Syrian or by the sea or uh, as Tristan calls it the fen of screech look I'm sorry my dyslexia is a whole thing Sarek? yeah yeah but it, every time no that's so valid girl I want to read it as the fen of screech every single time too um yeah uh the, uh, actually, funny enough, uh, I believe Turgon's entire force, because they come in late, at, at, when they are when they arrive to the battle, they look like a river, specifically. Uh, their their line says it looks like a river, which at first I was like, wait, that seems like a very inopportune way, because I imagined it front to back river, and I'm like, no, it's probably sideways. <laughs> it's like, no, the other way, Jordan, it's not a giant... Uh, it's not a giant like baggage train of Turgon's army with only like a very tiny front. That'd be a very silly way to do that. Well, it also kind of reminds me of the scene in I think it's Two Towers where you get to see the Arakai marching out to Helm's Deep beside yeah. a river, and it's like, wait, which one's yes. the river? Yeah. And and so in terms of marching, they would almost certainly be like a column no um, though it's though, though it's funny you you mentioned that because i was just thinking how um in in the lord of the rings movies like it's not part of the book they're adapting but how uh 
the uh 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 the uh when the when the elves show up at Helm's Deep is such a like oh this is exactly how I'm imagining uh, Turgon showing up feeling like it's like we weren't expecting you where did you come from and it's like yes these are much better soldiers than the ones we have right now and it still doesn't help that much it's like it's it's perfect it's like yep no they 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 got that feeling. And, like, as much good as, like, Helpon looked for is, and, like, kudos to Turkon for showing up, like, he could have at any point taken any part of the planning, like, sent people out to be like, hey, I hear you're asking for help. How can we be useful tactically? Instead of just showing up and being like, hey, Fingon, bro, I'm here. It's, it's Clippy Turgon. I see you're planning an assault on Angpan. Do you want some help with that? But I also feel like there's this weird meta knowledge thing about the fact that Tergon wouldn't have been as effective because you, you, the reader, know that Morgoth has spies and that Morgoth, like, knows what Fingen and Mythos's plan is going to be. So, yeah, so, like, it's it's undercut by the fact that Tergon showing up unexpected to the elves is like the only guarantee that he's also unexpected to Morgoth. I guess. Tergon is. It's paranoid. It it's actually kind of funny because the the secrecy of uh of Gon of Gondolin and Turgon actually becomes like a minor theme of this story because. We have his unlooked for coming. We have with uh, Huor's eyes of death. We uh, we get Turgon's like you know it won't be long now. We cannot hide now that we've come out for that long. Like we know the clock is ticking. And then at the very end, we get Morgoth uh, being like, "Who cares where Dargathron and Gondolin are? I have a whole run of the place, so they either are unimportant." Or I'll get them eventually. Just. Well, no, like that's his view of Nargathron and Doriath. His Doriath. view of Gondolin is, oh fuck, Tergon. Oh fuck, Tergon. Right, right, yes. <laughs> because cause Morgoth apparently has got weird vibes from Tergon every time he walked by him in, <laughs> in Valador, which is very hilarious. Yeah, I think it's funny because we're, like, retroactively told this information. Yeah. yeah. And also just this, I don't know, I, I mean, it's it's not, it's hundreds of years or whatever, but just the fact that, like, High King of the Noldor seems to get passed around a lot these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I've got a new king. That, I just realized that, like, Targon was born in Valinor. So, like, Morgoth, <laughs> Morgoth could have seen him as a literal baby. Yeah, no, he saw him as a baby and got the heebie-jeebies. That's <laughs> what it is. He's like, every time I saw Turgon or Turgon saw me, I was like, that boy, he's going to kill me. That's my doom. There he is. And, like, you have to picture that happening with Turgon, like, this big. <laughs> 
just just imagine like Morgoth like minding his own business in Valador, and ba- like five year old Turgon like peeks around the corner. And it's like, hey, mommy, what's what's Melkor doing over there? And Melkor not even hearing this, just like shiver down his spine, peeks up, looks around, not sure what happened. It's like, who, who said? Who, somebody staring at me. What's going on? It's the only thing they can jolt him out of his like planning to to capture a Silmaril is like weird Turgon heebie-jeebies. I mean, just imagine if he had like a Turgon sense that was more effective. He could just walk around and see wave. He has the highest heebie-jeebies, and he'd be like, "He's here! I don't know where, I mean, but he's close to here." We don't know that he doesn't have that. The fact that he doesn't leave his house kind of, you know, precludes him from ever using it. <laughs> so he can't, can't, he can't pass this sense on to anyone else, and he can't leave home. <laughs> yeah, he's stuck now. But like, just me. also, it's like, I just I think about I think about Turgon. Turgon sitting in his tower, plotting Morgoth's demise, and every once in a while, Morgoth just feels like a shiver go down his spine, and he knows he knows Turgon's planning something. He doesn't know what it is. <laughs> Make it more hilarious is that every time Turgon is plotting something, even if it's not really Morgoth related, Morgoth gets a shiver. It's like planning a surprise birthday party for his daughter. I don't know what's happening, I don't like that. And then he doesn't know ever because he's never invited to the party. So he's like, I I don't know, something's gonna happen. And like everyone's like, Morgoth, are you okay? He's like, no, I'm not okay. Turgon's planning something. I don't know what. <laughs> so we went down quite a rabbit hole. Yeah. It's not very much uh, chapter related, but it's very chapter related. It's new information we have. That's We're just speculating Turgon, Turgon. about this one line we have about Turgon and Morgoth. Like, hmm, what does that mean? Oh, How those could you have come up, finally? The speaking of, uh, we do have a throwaway line uh, confirming the uh, the uh, canon lineage of uh, uh, Gilgalad in this. <laughs> Uh, chapter. Yeah. And it's the one line that Christopher Tolkien said he shouldn't have put in the Silmarillion. Just... Hi, yes, yes, Gilgalad definitely got sent off south to Kirinan for reasons. That's all you need to know, he was sent off there for reasons. Also, Kirin. Oh. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say Kirin becomes like Vikings. They just start harassing orcs up and down the coastline. I mean, why do you think he has a beard? He needed to play as a part. Got some of those cool helmets from the from the Nagrod. Excuse me. Um. The mention of Gilgalad, who's like his, he's called Iranian Gilgalad, right? And Iranian is translated as Scion of Kings. So like the mention of Gilgalad made me remember um, (laughs) what's going on with the names in this chapter. And 
the names in this chapter are like a constant reminder that this is elf history, at least if you know some Sindarin, <laughs> because um, elves don't seem to remember that many um, individual names of humans. Um, most of what they're called is like names that they definitely were not born with. Um, for like the most obvious example and the most relevant to this chapter is uh, Ulfang and his sons, because they all start with Ul, which means ugly. Ulfang means ugly beard. Uh, and then one of his sons is named Ulwarth, which means ugly traitor. So it's like, yeah, that's not what you were called before the elves wrote down. <laughs> okay, I also love the fact that no elf reading this will be surprised by what happens. All elves reading this will be like, oh hey, that guy, trouble. <laughs> also, I love the fact that we attractively like calling him ugly beard. It's like, so what is the worst thing we can call him? This absolute traitor, this horrible person, this person who like led us to like a defeat at the saddest battle. Hmm, he had a terrible beard. And we know of beard because we all have one. Oh no, we don't. But we know very much about all of the beard of the world. This one is an ugly one. And I'm like, why? Like the ugly trader makes sense, but like the ugly beard is like, yeah. why? I name you Darth Goatee. <laughs> like that's actually what reading this as an elf would be like though. It's like, and then the people of Mithros made an alliance with Darth Goatee and his sons, Darth Traitor, and whatever else Darth they're called. Darth Traitor and It's not that far from uh, George Lucas's uh, own naming conventions, especially later on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have you met Ma Darth Maul's brother, Savage Opress? <laughs> Because that's a real character. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Nobody's just guessing that he's going to be a, just a hero. Total protagonist <laughs> material. Honestly, like, my favorite thing is back in, like, the very first one ever where they, he was still thinking of, like, Darth Vader as, like, first name and last name. So, like, people will call him Darth. And that only happens in the first movie. Like, like as in number yeah. four. Yes, yes. First chronologically made. Yeah. The oh, movie that is, was just called Star Wars. <laughs> no subtitle, no episode four, nothing. Just Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> can we talk current? I feel like that's maybe the last major thing. Um, yeah, I thought we already talked about her. Well, yeah. I just, because we mentioned him, but we have his last stand and also his talk with Morgoth. Mm 
which, uh, in which they learn not to insult Morgoth. But also good for you, Han. Yeah, I mean, yes, he's definitely got the most, maybe the most metal death, or not metal. It's not a death, but the most metal. Like, yes, I'm gonna just throw away my shield, take my axe double-handed, and hit everything that it comes at me until I'm just so you know floundering in bodies and armless grasping hands. So gross. Um yeah and specifically he goes down repeatedly yelling Aure and Tuluva, which means day shall come again. And is a callback, because we were talking about kind of nature imagery. There's also like the whole day and night imagery going on in this chapter. Um, Day come, the night is passing was the the original from... The day has come, behold people of the Eldar and fathers of men, the day has come. And then those who heard it answered, the night is passing. Hmm. And boy, howdy were they ever yeah, and then Horan caps this off by saying Dave shall again. It's a it's kinda of, I mean it's a really good line. It's a bit fascinating because I um I kind of especially um from a third age perspective, like the whole kind of day is for men, night is for the elves still kind of rings true. that like you don't see and a lot of of construction of like ideology that you miss right that's just not explicitly discussed so that you kind of there is this almost disjunction between the Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings where a lot of um the assumptions of Lord of the Rings are built right if you're looking in world and obviously there are really good reasons for that um but it's like, oh, we have what they tell us in the Akalabat about Numenor as, like, everything that builds the perception of humans and the hierarchy of, of humans in Lord of the Rings um, that's really kind of skimmed over uh, in Tolkien's work. And I think that, like, what you're talking about, about how you tell you can see the places where race is beginning to be constructed. Um, I, I think that's a really important kind of thing to discuss because something must have happened, you know? Somewhere in here, there must have been a shift in perspective um, that you can see actively at work in Lord of the Rings. You get the suggestion that it is ideology different ways but I think the most obvious one is the appendices of Lord of the Rings where I think that's where they talk about this I think that's where they talk about um the way Gondor create like built the discourse of who is like high versus middle versus men of darkness to 
accommodate the Rohirrim. Like, it, it's explicitly told to you that the men of Gondor met the Rohirrim and were like, oh, you must be like a branch of the House of Hador. You're clearly related to us. And the Rohirrim know that to be untrue, but it's politically expedient for them to go along with it. And so they're like, yes. This might be a much bigger question than like for right here, but I wonder how, like, if we tried to read this like more like in a historical way, um, right. So, because the el the elves, as we know from the very beginning of this book, are very fond of classifying themselves, right? You know, in the those early chapters where we get, you know, there's like the the three main divisions of like the Teleri, the Noldor, um, and um, why am I blanking? Um, Teleri, Vanyar. The Vanyar, um, but then there's also like who, right? The the unwilling, the 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 kind of gray elves, the green elves, and the um, those who moved. But like, right? So there's almost this like, right? Like they almost like they like making races of themselves. Um, but I'm also like, but you're also immortal beings, right? Who live right like personal choices mean a lot more perhaps to a person and so it'd be like so it is race a concept like more a cultural concept that gets twisted when applied to a mortal race um right so elves it's like oh we've classified ourselves in these ways and it kind of works for us and now we'll just start doing it to all you humans but Oh my, every, you know, every century you've like, you know, there's like two different, different humans now in the place of the ones that were before. So we'll just like, we won't bother like trying to reclassify you every generation. Um, so we'll just like keep the ones we have had. And I wonder if that's it is like in this world, if race would end up actually being a much like stranger concept because it's are initiated from like immortal beings placing undue restri like restrictions and classifications on on non on, on non-immortals yeah i think there's a really interesting point in there specifically about um how elves classify other groups of elves based on choices but like because elves live so long then in theory if you went and found the avar still be the same people who made that initial choice in practice it probably isn't they were probably hunted by monsters but you know the vanyar yeah. or whatever like the original vanyar who made that choice are the actual vanyar that still exists in manway and varda's antechamber um but in contrast, when you apply that to humans, what you get is generations of humans, like 50 generations separated from the decisions of their ancestors by which the elves are still defining them. 
And and a lot of that is all it's defining them based on like high, middle, low, basically is how close are we to elves? Yeah. <laughs> right? It's it's a it's a elvishness scale as much as anything. Because it's like if you're new Minorian, you're basically half elves already. Middle is yeah, mixed it up a bit and And like the elves are defining themselves by how many degrees of separation they are from the Valar. But the elves making the choice to define themselves that way are the ones who are closest to the Valar. Yeah, seems objective. <laughs> yeah, I should have no bias. <laughs> you can see based on that how how those things become entrenched, right? So, and that's the that's the thing about the elves being so long lived. The elves are like you and your house. You betrayed us personally. We hate you forever. And a personal grudge that, say, Mydros holds affects generations of humans. Generations of humans who can't trade with the most powerful people on the continent, for example. Right? And so, so two generations of elves holding a family grudge is literally three ages of humans thousands of years of humans cut off from trade routes and resources and access to what elves and some humans consider to be like civilizing influence um right and so then by the time you get to the lord of the rings you are like not shocked that there are humans who really don't like elves and might actually want to fight them, and might, you know, go to war for somebody who tells them that they're going to be given something, and that now is their time, and they will be powerful, because, yeah, the actions of their ancestors generations and generations and thousands of years ago have kept them from holding power and from growing as a civilization also, or, also, all those elfy humans uh, kept like colonizing your stuff away from yeah, you. Yeah, then the Numenorians come and colonize you. Heck, and then it then it gets even worse when you add in the fact that um, for some people it isn't even what their ancestors did; it's what the people perceived as their ancestors did. Yeah, it's wild. It's like, oh. Oh, it's wild. You understand how you get to that point. You do. It makes sense. Yeah. It's really interesting. This is this is why uh should adapt Tolkien. Because we've thought about it a lot. <laughs> One really just random final note from me on stuff in here um morgoth's uh morgoth's curse on hurin speaking of like weird endings and weird beginnings i find it so strange this coming at the end of this battle as opposed to the beginning of the children of hurin because i have that version in my head um Mm -hmm. from from the from the novelized children of hurin um, which the the curse itself is a bit different and expanded in that version. And I it was like one of my favorite lines: the uh, 
with my ears you shall hear and nothing shall be hidden from you the hidden from you part is not in this version which mm -hmm. is like huh that's a that's a different choice but also like in comparison to the baron and luthien it's like wait why is this part of this story instead of like of turin turin bar i guess i mean that might be why like you might because it's it's yeah. not the chapter here isn't of the children of turin the chapter here is of turin turin bar that might be why yeah. <laughs> possibly and like you know it's like you know, keep all the her and stuff together. I just, you know, in terms of beginnings and endings, and where do you put one versus the other? Like, definitely, if you write the right the story of Turin and his sister in a book, you should probably put what happened to his dad at the very beginning of that story. Um, yeah, as context, but like in this version, it's like, oh, Hurin and his curse is a is a coda or on, on this big battle and then and then you just have to remember that when you read about Turin later. As I just find kind of interesting. Cool. So for next week we're reading the first half of, of Turin Turin Bar.